Welcome to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with Lee Jackson. Hi, welcome to Get Good at Presenting, the podcast with myself, Lee Jackson. And uh, my very special guest here is Michelle Mills-Porter. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Lee. Michelle Mills-Porter, or she's known as MMP. But when did everyone start calling you MMP, Michelle? God, donkeys ago. I think it's just because when... You know, when when you've got people's initials in spreadsheets and stuff like that, it just stuck MMP. But actually, Warren Cass calls me Mo Mill Poe, which I, I prefer even more. <laughs> That's great. So Michelle's Mill Porter is the people reader. The people reader, unleashing people, potential values, motivation, collaboration, performance, a keynote speaker and presenter. Now, I know that Michelle, I want to get Michelle to share a little bit of her story and a little bit of what she does, because her, a little bit like my business, your business is kind of in two camps, isn't it? You're an inspirational speaker, a keynote speaker, but also you develop this tool that really helps businesses and individuals and teams and stuff. So can you explain, Michelle, what those two kind of parts of your business are really? Yeah. So, okay. So Michelle Mills Porter is the speaker and, you know, the motivational person, trainer, blah, blah, blah. And then the people reader is the side of the business, which is my suite of analysis tools, which I guess is kind of the proof and the science behind what I do. You know, it's great to have analyses that you can fill out that give you the scientific backup to what I'm waffling on about. So it's it's good <laughs> to have both elements, isn't it? So which one came first then, the, the tools, the people reader, or you as a keynote speaker? Which one came first? So I was always a speaker when right from back in early 2000, when when I had an extremely successful little marketing company, which was doing really, really well. And it started off with the Chamber of Commerce saying, Michelle, you're doing fabulously, winning all these awards. Will you talk to the rest of our members? And so it started off with that. And then there was a spin-off from the Chamber of Commerce, which was called Business Link, was it? Yeah, Business like Link. That. I remember those. Yeah. yeah. And I became a paid speaker for Business Link and did lots of workshops and things like that. But a lot of people nowadays know me for my keynote story, which is my my story about the tsunami, that didn't happen until 2004. And in fact, I didn't start speaking about it until I'd actually created all of those analysis tools and everything in between. So it's not so black and white, really. I was a speaker anyway. I didn't speak about my tsunami experience until probably four or five years ago. And I had created the analysis tools by then, which gave me the purpose, the reason to talk about it. Oh, I see. You're right. Yeah. Because I've heard you speak probably three or four times, I guess, with slightly different hats on, but I've never, it was a while till I'd really heard your full inspirational story about being on that day when the tsunami hit. And I must admit, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd known you as someone who was really friendly, you had a business and all that kind of stuff. But then when I, when I was, when I was, when I heard that for the first time, I was like, oh, right. There's a lot more to Michelle than I realized, <laughs> you know, because we all meet business people who only give away a part of themselves. You know, they're there to provide a service. Whereas all of a sudden, when you do the human, human magnificence, like it's called, isn't it? When you do that, it was like a real deep dive. I don't want you to do your keynote, but maybe you can share for two or three minutes exactly what happened because it, it blew me away when I first heard it. It really did. Sure. Well, I guess a lot of people say their talk doesn't define them. And and I'm determined that I live by that rule. 
And I don't think that you should talk about a story just because it's a good story, unless you've got a reason, yeah. unless it does a service to people, then don't don't bother because otherwise it's just a story about you and nobody wants to hear about you. You know. <laughs> so what happened to me was I was running this very successful business, decided to go on a couple of holidays to celebrate my massive success and <laughs> found myself for the first time ever going away at Christmas. We went on a diving holiday with our dive team and um, we went to Sri Lanka. And that was, of course, at Christmas 2004. And we'd only been there a couple of days when we got caught smack bang in the middle of the Boxing Day tsunami. Now, for those who don't know the story, I woke up having tried to go back to bed and nurse my hangover. I woke up and the world had ended. You know, everyone had fled, everyone had gone. We were 30 foot deep in water and I had no idea what had happened. It felt like... I mean, just 30 foot, you say? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because we were on the third floor of the hotel and by the time we looked out the window, the water was not far below my window. I could have reached down. Basically, if Stuart grabbed my leg and supported me, I could have reached down and touched it. The point is, that's three floors up and the hotel was elevated anyway on the beach. So it was at least 30 foot at that point. And we couldn't get out of the hotel because the water was up to the first floor ceiling of the hotel. So we couldn't get out of the hotel. And we had no idea how high the water was going to come up. So we had nowhere left to go apart from the roof. And, you know, we couldn't get onto the roof without climbing out the window. So it was it was really, really scary for a moment. And, of course, everyone had gone and we didn't understand. Where had everyone gone? Why was there no warning? Why did we not hear any sirens or anything? But, of course, they didn't have any warning signs and nobody knew that it was a tsunami. So, yeah, I guess. So, like, no, nobody in the hotel knocked on your door or rang a bell or anything like that people were just left sleeping in the hotel well what happened was when we were woken up after going back to bed after breakfast we we went to try and nurse our hangovers and and get some sleep and we heard screaming and shouting and slamming doors Stuart and I thought it was people in the hotel mucking around and we thought who on earth have they let in this hotel this is disgraceful <laughs> pulled our pillows over our ears and tried to go back to sleep So the realisation when we woke up to this sound of kind of water outside, like there was a storm going on and, you know, and we knew it was a beautiful day. We couldn't couldn't kind of fathom what was going on. So when we opened the curtains and realised that we were surrounded in water, it dawned on us that that shouting and screaming and slamming of doors was the only warning sign that we had and we'd missed it. And for a while, I did feel abandoned and... I had that very, very strong feeling of abandonment. How could you leave us behind? But actually, when you're being swept away with a tsunami, you don't necessarily stop and check on people's doors, whether they're still in there or not. So, yeah, by the time we got up, everyone had gone. And it took us, I don't know how long, but but a long while before we saw another human being again. The point of this is that that is the story. And even now, my keynote doesn't necessarily talk about the story. What it talks about is what I discovered during that. The beauty is what I discovered about humanity in the aftermath of that tsunami. Yeah, that's what I was was about to ask you the question, really. Big, big story. You know, if you've been on the earth long enough, you remember the tsunami because even here in the UK, it shook. you know, at the most crass level, it spoilt our Christmas. 
because I, I remember it. Oh, I, I know it's so sad, isn't it? But I, I remember, I remember seeing it on the news and then thinking, "Oh my word!" Because you know, you build yourself up to Christmas, don't you? And then you see a really horrible disaster, and then people just sort of, and and so I know I didn't mean to say that in a kind of horrible way. That's not what I mean. But it was like that's how I remember it as that big thing that happened at Christmas in two thousand and four. He said. But of course, I didn't realize that I'd ever meet someone who was there. And that's that's the connection that you make. But my my bigger question really is, yes, it's a big, big story and it's worldwide story that we remember. But you make that connection to the everyday, that connection to businesses and organizations. So how did you make the leap from a crazy story to business advice personal motivation advice, all that kind of stuff. How did you make those links? So I never wanted to talk about it. I was inundated with national magazines and newspapers that wanted my story and I refused. It was very crass. It felt very, very wrong to talk about it in that sense when so many people had lost their lives. And just to put it into context, Lee, it was the biggest natural disaster in our living history. The earthquake that caused the tsunami was equivalent to... 23,000 Hiroshima bombs going off in one go. And the crack in the Earth's crust was from here to Germany, basically. That's how, how right. big it was. So it was it was massive. And 250,000 people lost their lives immediately. Another 250,000-ish lost their lives through disease and injury and displacement afterwards. So it, it you'd be pretty hard pushed in your lifetime to not meet somebody that was in it or affected by it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the fact that I never wanted to talk about it. And it was a friend of mine, Mary Flavel. She interviewed me on radio. She wanted to talk about my tsunami story and I I wouldn't Mm -hmm. let her. We were having dinner the night before um, the show, Great British Expo show. And she said to me, Michelle, you know you're missing a trick not talking about this. And at the time I was mortally offended. You know, how dare you tell me that I need to talk about this disaster? But I'd spent years and years kind of trying to understand what I'd learned and what I'd witnessed, diving into learning more about human behavior and what it is that I discovered, this magnificence that I discovered at the core of humanity, which was so beautiful. But that took a decade for me to understand that and to put it into words and then to create analyses that helped other people to unfold that. So it was only then that I actually thought, do you know what? there is a point to me telling this story. And so now I tell the story just so that people understand how I learned and how I got to the conclusions I've got to, because I haven't done it through getting a doctorate. I haven't done it through academia. Mine is life experience. And and that gives the background as to why I discovered what I've discovered, which in essence is the magnificence of humanity. Wow. That is wonderful to hear. And People listening may or may not know that I, I always think of speakers in certain kind of camps or brackets, you know, that there's a motivational speaker, there is a, an Olympian speaker, there's a sports speaker, there's the adventure speaker, and then inspirational speaker, which I probably more put you into in that. That's usually someone who has a story that they share, but often that story doesn't have any practical outcomes. They get, you know, it's an after dinner story. You know, and it would work. I'm sure you've done a few of those. You know, it works perfectly well. You telling that story, people are blown away by it. 
they want to talk to you afterwards or whatever. But I think what, what you've done really well, which I love, is that you have this story, but it remains very human-based. It remains very personal and very practical. Because I think you're right that as much as I love story and I tell people to use story, story for the sake of story's sake can be quite narcissistic, really, can't it? It can be quite inward looking for no reason. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, and, and I can't remember who it was when I first joined the Professional Speaking Association, but somebody said to me, so what? And I love that. And, you know, I think it's a brilliant tip for speakers. If they have a subject they want to talk about, you've got to keep asking the question, so what, until you've run out of answers. If there is not a so what, don't even bother because it's, you know, people are going to, I don't want people to say, oh yeah, Michelle, she's the tsunami girl. What? Why do I want to be remembered for that? I don't. The tsunami story is a vehicle in order to explain why I have discovered what I've discovered and why it's so important to people. So sometimes people ask me, Michelle, how come you've got one story and yet you can tell that in so many different environments and have a different outcome? So for instance, you know, I can close the CIPD conference and we can concentrate on the importance of people's core values and making sure they're fulfilled at work. I can close the IOSH conference and talk about collaboration and how human mm. beings come together for their partnership relationships. I can talk at the ISMA conference and close that conference talking about, you know, what motivates us as human beings. And when people say, how come you've got so many subjects? That's a week of my life, Lee. Yeah. It's a week of my life, which is kind of branded in my brain every moment of that week. There mm. is a whole week of stories there to uncover, and there are so many. The key, really, in terms of what I learned, was that human beings are magnificent. And when you peel back all those layers, when you put a human being in adversity, that's when you see their true colours. And the realisation that we are all beautiful, that we are compassionate, benevolent and giving as animals was just incredible. And it rocked my world. Mm. Interesting. You said that human beings are animals. Do you think we're animals or do you think we are above animals? No, we're animals. We're animals. We have animal instincts. We're Yeah, I I believe that we're animals. I believe that we're part of the animal kingdom, you know, Mm. just Mm. because we're at the top of the food chain. I've heard that ants are very, very cleverly, so you better watch your position (laughs) at the top of the food chain. They could take over at any moment, believe me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I I, I don't think of myself as an animal. I I think humans are different to animals, but that's just to do with consciousness, I guess, soul stuff, isn't it? But we... Yeah, very interesting. That very interesting. It um, is. We could we could have a bottle of wine and drag up a sandbag and talk about that for hours. Yeah, I'm we sure. have we have had some pretty deep chats, haven't we? Over the over the last couple of years, it's been nice. You're my sage in spiritual <laughs> aspects. Well, there you go. I'll, I'll put that on my LinkedIn profile. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Okay, so let's go for the most practical thing then. So people listen to this, they watch this video, they listen to this podcast for they want to learn better presentation skills. So you had this raw story and the story probably was raw and you probably weren't ready to share it, I'm guessing, for many years because, you know, there's trauma in there and everything else. So how did you make that raw story into, you know, into sections of a keynote speech? What process did you go through in order to make it engaging for an audience, but also so you could remember it? Because if you've only got 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 
you could easily speak for that for three hours without stopping, I'm guessing, you know. So how did you make it into a, a great speech? So the most important thing for me, and something that as long as people quote me for, can use it as much as they want, but I'm very proud of this. The story is the wrapping paper. And the gift is the lessons that you leave people with. So as long as you use it in that ratio, you can't go far wrong. And I did battle in terms of how I present it. If you look at my first ever TEDx talk, which is one of the first times I ever spoke about it, I was very linear in terms of the way I delivered it. You know, for me, I had to go through the process and tell it in a linear fashion. And I think it was possibly a little bit of influence from Alan Stevens and various other people in the PSA that taught me that actually, if you watch a film, quite often the film will dive you straight in it and you don't have to deliver in a linear fashion. And then that took me back to the first time I'd ever written about this story. Before I ever spoke about it, I wrote it. And this was back in 2010. And I won the WI Coroner Cup for creative writing by writing a thousand piece of creative writing. And all we were given was the fact that it had to be a thousand words and the title was The Garden. And so it felt like heavens opened and somebody had said, Michelle, this is yours. <laughs> so, so enter. So I entered. I belonged to WI Light in Stratford at the time, a wonderful group of women that I did. It's not Jam and Jerusalem. These women did things <laughs> like we learned how to um, do burlesque dancing and all sorts of kind of raucous things that you wouldn't expect in WI. And they'd asked week after week, will somebody please enter for us because we need to be represented? And I kept saying, no, you're new, Michelle. Sit on your hands. Don't volunteer for everything. But when they told us that, you know, the title was The Garden, I thought, this is made for me. I have to write it. And when I wrote that story, I started right in the middle of the garden and then backtracked. So when it came to delivering my keynote, the final element of my keynote, that's what I did. So I take people straight to the garden which is where we spent our time as refugees in Jimmy Lyle's garden. So Mm. I take them right there and then I backtrack to how I got there. And the reason I do that is because for me, I need to authentically engage with my audience and I want to trigger, this is why it's, it's really good for me to remember us as human beings as animals, because I need to trigger all of those senses that we have. So when I want somebody to be engrossed in the story, I need to trigger all of their senses. So I will make them smell the smells that I smelt. I will make them feel the fear and, and give them what it feels like. For me, the fear was like taking a spoonful of wasabi or a spoonful of English mustard. It gave me this burning sensation in my nose and up through my head and throughout my body. And that's what fear feels like. So I make it very tangible and trigger people's senses. And all of a sudden they're engrossed in the story and completely open to all the lessons that I want to deliver to them without even knowing it. Wow. That's great. Yeah. So triggering senses. That's what a good story is. I, I often, I often, when I'm coaching people or doing a day, I often say to people, thanks for that. You gave me a black and white story. I need you to color that in now. You know, I use phrases like that, like I guess all presentation coaches do because a lot of people do a black and white sketch of something, but it is the sights, the smells, the sounds, those kind of things, which actually bring those things alive. And I've never talked to you about music, but obviously music's been a big part of my life, being in a band and being a DJ. But there is certain pieces of music where I can be absolutely transported back to a school disco 
And I remember the smell of the hall and what it looked like and what it felt like when I was age 12 in a school disco dancing to the human league or something. Do you know what I mean? I, it just takes triggers, doesn't it, to get you into that place. So you work really hard to draw the audience in, even though it's a very personal story. Yeah, no, because I want them to be there. I don't want to, yeah. to look at this and say, oh, Michelle was there. I want them to feel that they were there because if I make them feel that they were there, they can pick up the lessons that I'm sharing as their own rather than just listening to somebody else. So that's why I do it. But it's really interesting what you said. And I'm sure that Linda Shaw and Leori Fern Pollack, all of our neuroscientist friends would love this subject because if you look at PTSD, which I, I did suffer from, PTSD can be triggered by smells and by changing temperature more readily than other things. These are things that trigger those neural pathways. So actually, it's a very clever thing to actually trigger somebody's senses because it transports them right to where you want them to be. And it opens their minds to all the things that you want to share with them. And Mm. they may not realise that they are remembering that, but, you know, if they remember that piece of music or that feeling again, it will remind them of the lessons that they were taught in that moment as well. So it's really quite complicated, isn't it? So does you ever have to give maybe a trigger warning for people then because you could, I guess, take people, you know, because your story is so, is so horrendous on many levels, you know, do you have to sort of warn people that you might trigger them in some way? Because that could be quite interesting, couldn't it? Dangerous, yeah, it could, but I don't, because I don't usually share anything that is really vivid or really upsetting. Okay. There's a safe space. You can make people feel stuff and you can give them, it's like an artist creating an impression rather than, you know, a, a real life, painting it's an impression so I give people an impression of the story but I don't give them all the gory details and it's funny the people that want to know the gory details are the kids Lee all right did you see any arms hanging off did you see any dead bodies they always want to know all the gory stuff so you just have to check with the teachers what you're allowed to you talk about and what you're not you know most audiences are very happy with you know with just me delivering the impression Some of them want to go a bit deeper. That's fine. Um, And they will be prepped before I talk. I understand. Great. Have you ever just shared the story without any application? Has anyone, as a client, ever asked you just to share the story alone without ever doing the extra stuff that you spend most of your life doing? Yeah, people have asked me to do it and I say no. Okay. In the same way that if a newspaper came to me now and said, Michelle, we want to share your story. Will you do the story for us? I'll say no. And they'll say, we'll pay you £10,000. I'll say no. No. There is a reason for me delivering this, and the reason is not sensationalism. You do not need to sensationalise what I went through and what so many other people went through. There is still a trigger there. You can probably hear it in my response. There is is still an element there that, that makes me want to defend I'll never forget, Lee, you know, when we were refugees and when we were making our way out of Sri Lanka and being rescued, there were loads of TV cameras and interviews that wanted to hear about us. And all the refugees were incensed by these people approaching us with cameras. It was the Mm. most insensitive thing that you could do. So why would I then come back home and and sensationalise the story? You know, I just Mm. wouldn't. 
somebody said something, and I have to share this. Somebody said something to me and lost my friendship recently. This is somebody I've known a long, long time. And they said to me, oh, Michelle, I just saw your keynote for the first time. And I said, oh, did you? And they said, yeah, what an ingenious way to create a, an affluent lifestyle for yourself. And um, in that moment, I thought, you don't know me. You don't know why I do this. Wow. You don't know that I gave everything that I owned away. You don't know that I created a charity and we raised £100,000 in six months. You have no idea who I am and I have no time for you in my life. And I never said anything to them. I just distanced myself because I cannot teach that person. Wow. I can't teach them. If that's what they think of me, then so be it. But I don't yeah. have anything in common with with that thought process. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I suppose the social media, not only TV and stuff and the news, but social media always gives us the extremes of that, doesn't it? So I guess the people will see people who've made money off a bad situation. That's quite a common thing, isn't it? That yeah. you, you know, people go on a reality show and they end up being a presenter on the one show. And it all started because they've made money off a thing, you know, off a story. So I can kind of get why people would think that, but obviously they don't know you. And so they've made massive assumptions that are just not you at all. Cause you're one of the most friendliest, authentic giving people that I've ever met. And so you, you know, you're not, you're not going to be that person, but I, I suppose it's, I suppose that's solid because some people have done that in the past, I guess. that's So they therefore think, think everybody must do that. That's I shocking. think in that situation, Lee, the only thing it tells me is what that person's values are about. Wow. And, and what they're doing is they're looking at their values and thinking, oh, I wish I'd have thought of that or I wish I'd have done that. And it's their values that they're trying to, they're judging me by and they're wrong, you know, and that's why I don't think I, I probably have anything in common with them. Yeah. So, so the neuroscience of that is that they're projecting their values onto you, which is yeah. quite a common thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I think if somebody comes to me and says, Michelle, we really love your story. Can you deliver it? Because we think it'd be really motivational. I'll say, well, the story is not motivational. I'm not a hero. I didn't save anyone's life. I didn't jump through hoops in order to survive. You know, I wasn't hanging off a cliff edge. It's a very normal story. The elements of my story, the motivational stuff is how I saw human beings come together, how I saw people collaborate, how I saw people communicate so easily with no barriers, not even language barriers. It's so easy when you're faced with with adversity in front of you. And all I'm trying to do is show people that they have magnificence. We all have magnificence. We're just not tested. But if you were in a situation where adversity hit you in the face, you would suddenly see all these magnificent things poking out of you, you know? And that's what I'm trying to show people. Thank you. That's great. So I guess the obvious question to ask you is at time of recording, it's May 2021. We're 14 months into a global pandemic. Have you seen any human magnificence in this pandemic that we've been in? Because this, for most of us, this is the biggest, this is the closest we'll ever get to an horrific situation, isn't it? It is. And I think I've always said, and if you look at any of my talks, I've always said what this planet needs in order for humanity to come together and collaborate properly is a common global enemy. If we were attacked by aliens, we would right. probably come together and we would come together and we would collaborate and it would be magnificent. And I thought that when the pandemic hit, I thought, oh my gosh, could this be it? Could this be the common global en enemy that brings us together? And do you know what? For a second, I thought it would. 
And when we were all standing out in the street and applauding for key workers and the NHS, I thought, this is it. We are going to understand the lessons about collaboration and we're never going to forget this. But it's like being on a surfboard. We get on it and we fall off it. And that's what happened. We fell off it. But everyone in this life will have seen snippets of human magnificence, of people collaborating, people doing wonderful things. And then we forget we're like elastic and we go back to the way we were. So we need these lessons several times before it sticks. But let me just tell you one thing in order to try and put that into context. Sure. I remember the very first time I was on a bus and I looked out the window and I saw the very first don't let your dog poo here sign. Do you remember those? <laughs> I saw that. I guess so. It was a sign of a dog in like one his stop sign and a sign of a dog pooing. And it, oh, it, I see don't let your dog poo here kind of sign. Mm. And I was at, I thought, how on earth are they ever going to police that? But nowadays, do you ever see a dog pooing in public? No, because we've flooded society with the message that you shouldn't let your dog poo in public. So if that can be an analogy for any lessons in human collaboration, then let it be. Let's keep telling people when we're in adversity, we will come together. And when we collaborate, it will be brilliant. And let's just keep telling them that. And one day it'll rub off. (laughs) I think they do poo in public. We just clean it up now. I guess that's the difference, right? All right. Don't leave your dog poos in public. Is that better? (laughs) I found one on my grass verge the other day. Some noise. There's somebody that walks past my house that just lets their dog do something. I also think, uh, is it feedback for one of my talks? I often wonder. But <laughs> there's something personal there, Lee. Something personal. You're being targeted. You're targeted by one Alsatian in their in their place. Yeah, yeah. So great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all the stuff, Michelle. Have you just got maybe one or two more tips? about being a presenter, being a speaker that you learned, one or two more tips that you sort of learned over time that you could share with the listeners and the viewers here? Okay, well, in that case, there's one thing in particular I'd like to share. Some people say, you know, how much is too much when you're delivering? Um, how much vulnerability do you share? Yeah. And there's there's two things I want to say about that. First of all, if you're talking about something that's personal to you, I remember I've been a singer in the past and and to sing a really heartfelt song that triggers emotions makes you cry. And that's the same as when you're delivering a talk, you know, when you're talking about something that's personal, it can make you cry. The only way to get past that point and be able to deliver it without being too emotional and without dragging your audience through the same trauma is to practice, practice, practice until you can almost separate yourself a little bit. Uh, So if you think about the singer practicing the love song until they don't cry anymore, that's how what you have to do with with your talk. If it's a heartfelt talk, you have to practice it and practice it until you can separate yourself slightly so that you can find the space that allows you to reach an audience without taking them over into trauma and making it a safe place for them. The second thing that I want to say on that subject is that I have burst into tears when I very first started speaking about this. Again, I was actually at the Great British Expos delivering this for businesses. And it was the first time that my husband had been in the audience. He'd never heard it. Oh. You know, he, Stuart always says he, he hears me talking all the time. He doesn't need to come to any of my talks. 
He knows what I sound like. So he doesn't come, but for some reason he was standing at the back, you know, in the audience. And there was a point when I was telling my story and you know, my husband, he's a man's man. He's not very emotional and all the rest of it. But I saw from the back of the audience, I saw his eyes well up and that took me over the edge and I started to cry. And I, I swear a lot of people say, well, that was too much. You know, it was, it was obviously raw. She shouldn't have delivered it yet. I can tell you now, the, the friendships I made with the people in that room that got up to hand me tissues, to hug me and to help me see it through, those friendships have lasted till today. And that was mm. that was years ago. And so the connections that I made by showing that vulnerability were even deeper and even had more longevity than any other talk I've ever done. So I don't really think that you can be too vulnerable. Okay. So, I mean, I hear quite a lot that, you know, you don't, you shouldn't share from stage something you should be in therapy about. That's a kind of a thing. So are you saying that, I mean, I don't think you're saying that everything should be shared and should be shared immediately. Like what you're saying is you practiced a bit of a separation and you were ready still to do that. I I, was ready. And I I remember you saying that to me several years ago when I was, regional president of um, PSA Midlands and you came to speak and we had a little chat beforehand and I remember you saying to that to me then and you're absolutely right bear in mind I'd had 10 years of therapy by then I'd done my therapy I knew it the trigger for me was actually it wasn't delivering it it was seeing my husband being emotional that's what sent me over the edge so it wasn't the fact that I wasn't ready to deliver it it was an external factor that I didn't cater for in my mind I hadn't I hadn't prepared for that but seeing my husband I just kick him out of all my talks now and I'm free as a bird <laughs> yeah yeah I guess I guess it's, it's it's just clarification isn't it because that because I didn't realize I'd said anything like that to you before but there is people here that are listening to this now who've had some traumatic event and they feel like they want to share it and I think the most awkward talks you ever watch are when people are sharing things too early when you realise that, um, who was telling me the other day was, um, might have been some, I can't remember who was the other day, that said, you, you know, you, you speak from the scar, not from the wound. I kind of understand that. Yeah. Uh, for me, when my dad died, you know, that was one of the biggest events in my life. You know, my dad was, I was close to my dad. I looked like him, I sound like him. You know, we had a great relationship. So when he died, it took me a long time to even mention that on stage or in a training session, because it just it just wasn't right for me to do that. But over a period of maybe three or four years, I then felt able to do that. I think you're hitting on the other thing that I talked about, though, Lee. You're right, but there is also the fact that if the story is the wrapping paper and yeah. the gift is what you give to people, then you need to find the purpose of that story. If you have a purpose for that story, the emphasis is not on the trauma of it. That's just the wrapping paper, you know? So for me, that actually fits really, really nicely. Don't talk about your story if there's no benefit to the audience. Yeah. And it's just a dead dog story or whatever people call it. (laughs) Oh, what a shame, you know, next. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't mean to sound cold, but there has to be a reason for you delivering a story. Otherwise, there's no point, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Really good stuff, Michelle. Like, Gosh, we could talk for hours about this stuff. I appreciate your honesty. appreciate you coming to share. How can people get a hold of you? How can they uh, 
connect with you online and stuff? There is only one Michelle Mills Porter. <laughs> it's true. If you Google me, there's only one. I'll come up for the first seven or eight pages. Just oh, link really? with me or, you know, or send me a message. If you just say, because I might ignore you unless you say that, you know, you've you've seen this <laughs> or something, because I get stalked a lot. Oh, you get stalked? Is that because you're the only one? No, no, I don't. I'm just teasing. Uh, but I like it when people send a personal message. So if people say, oh, you know, I listened to this podcast and I wanted to link, that's perfect. I will just accept you straight away and probably want to know more and more about you uh, right. because I'm really interested in people. I love relationships, you know. That's great. Well, one of the, one of the wonderful things you've said to me of the years is I complimented you. And I get sometimes a bit nervous about complimenting people because people can take things the wrong way these days. But uh, your your lovely comment was like, Lee, you can compliment me as much as you want, anytime you want. It's all good. <laughs> I'll take <laughs> anything. I'll, you know, you can tell me my bum doesn't look too big in this. I'll have it. You know. <laughs> I wouldn't mention anything like that, but <laughs> it's always lovely to see you, Michelle Mills Porter. You're wonderful. Please check her out. Just Google Michelle Mills Porter, find her on LinkedIn or whatever, and uh, she will help you with all sorts of things. And you can hear her amazing story. So thank you for being with me, Michelle Mills Porter. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for listening to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with your host, Lee Jackson. If you'd like to know more about Lee's work as a motivational keynote speaker and presentation coach, visit his website at leejackson.biz. That's leejackson.biz.